You are listening to the Follow series on 1 Peter from Holy Cross Presbyterian Church in Stanton, Virginia. 1 Peter is a letter written to Christians struggling to follow after Jesus in a world in which they increasingly see themselves as strangers. It is both instruction how and an encouragement to live in the world in relationships, vocations, communities, and the church out of an identity formed by the transforming and perfect work of Jesus Christ. Let me remind us what we're doing this morning. What does it look like to be a follower of Jesus Christ in the world? Like that's that's what we've been looking at over the course of the summer. Uh, we've been taking that question to the Bible because the reality is that we're very confused on that. Many of us are very confused. Some of us think that that it, what what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ is primarily something of the intellect. It's something some questions that we the answers to questions that we have, right? Uh, well, I know these propositions. That makes me a follower of Jesus. For others of us, though, it's not really about propositions. We're tired of all that, all that heady stuff, and it's really about what you do. It's about who you associate with and the kinds of actions you take. What we've seen this summer, I hope, is that what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus is growing in knowing Jesus, not in terms of propositions, but in a truly relational way, knowing Him, but also showing Him. like We know Him through things like private worship and public worship, through Christian community, things like that. But we also show Christ to the world. And we show Him, we looked at last week, we show Him through things like character, through community, through calling, and through mission. And one of the both unique and truly uncomfortable ways that Peter talks about showing Christ here in this letter is that we show Christ by following Him down the path that He walked. It's a path of suffering, a path of rejection, What does it mean to follow Christ through suffering, and why, why does it have to be that way? These are two questions that we're going to take to the Scripture this morning. If you have your place in God's Word, I'd invite you to stand. This is our, our tradition here. We're going to be reading um, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. Let's remember, this is God's Word. Hear it in that way. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is God's word given so that we might flourish. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we come before your word this morning, we ask for your grace. As was said several times this morning, some of us in this room are just clinging to the gospel with our fingernails. And we find it ironically funny that this morning is a message about suffering. Others of us are so far from suffering, we don't even know what that street looks like right now. But together, we are here before you. And so we ask that you would open our hearts, that you would preach your gospel to us so that we might believe, that we might repent, no matter where we are, 
some of us in this room, Lord, don't even, don't even know You. And so we need You to speak to us. Reveal Yourself to us. Reveal us to us that we might believe on You. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. It doesn't take a genius, uh, which is good because you don't have one in front of you, but it doesn't take a genius to know that our culture is rather pain-averse, right? I mean, our first reaction to discomfort is some form of medication. Right? We, we, we have some kind of pain, some kind of tickle in the back of our throat, and the first thing we do is, where are my pills? Where, where, this, this isn't the way it should be. Uh, we live in the shadow of this modernist project, which tricked us into believing that that we as humans should be able to master the universe, right? That we should be able to, to make things bend to our will. And so trifling things like discomfort and tragedy should never happen, right? That's, that's why every time some national tragedy happens for the next uh, several months, all you hear is disclaimers about how this will never happen again, as if we can somehow keep evil at bay, we can keep suffering at bay. We hate the idea of suffering, but at the same time, we have this strange admiration for people who seem to be able to like discipline themselves through intense suffering to achieve a goal, right? Like our like our athletes, like guys, how you seem to uh, be enamored with MMA fighters, right? Who kill themselves to get into a ring to bludgeon one another, and some we're like, that's cool. If I could only do that. Uh, yeah. We have an admiration. It's, it's ambivalence. The church is no different. Because on the one hand, we have whole flavors of Christianity today that have proclaimed that the victorious Christian life is one in which there's no such thing as suffering. There's no such thing as, as, um, as pain. Uh, that, that a victorious Christian is one who should be full of prosperity, totally without pain. But on the other hand, we have this new romantic love affair, right, with, with the idea of like voluntary poverty, which never seems to equate to an increased generosity. That's, that's, another, that's another topic altogether. The, the point is this. Uh, the church is no different than the world in this. And then, of course, we have our varied responses to suffering, right? We go through suffering. Some of us get angry. Others of us, uh, probably, I guess, would be a healthy portion of us in this room, when we suffer, we think somehow we deserve it, right? God's getting me because I'm a bad person. What Peter challenges us, challenges us to see this morning is that Christian suffering is full of meaning and it is uncompromisingly tied to the one that we follow. Uh, there's an outline in your bulletin if that's helpful to you. If not, just leave it where it is. We're going to look at three things this morning. We're going to look at the fact of Christian suffering because it does exist, believe it or not. We're going to look at the goal of Christian suffering because it does have an end to it, a meaning. And then finally, we're going to wrestle with it because we need to do that, Okay. All right, let's begin with the fact of Christian suffering. Look down at verse 13. Peter says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Okay, stop there. Let's be honest. Because what Peter says there, don't be surprised as if something strange is happening to you, is exactly what we do when suffering happens. It's exactly what we do. When we experience pain, the first thing we think is, what is wrong? Something is wrong here. Something strange is happening, and it's surprising to us. Some of that is good and right, but some isn't. Now, before we get to the question of why specifically Peter's audience would have thought that Christian suffering is strange, and they would have, uh, we need to say a couple things about what Peter says here. 
First, we need to not read too much into, into Peter's language. When he talks about the fiery trial, what he does not mean is that Christians are being burnt. Okay, This, this is a little bit before that time, Paul, or Peter's writing, before the time where um, the Emperor Nero would have made it a uh, fun sport to light up his garden with Christians. It did happen, but it, it did happen, but not, not at this time. Uh, Peter is probably uh, writing... In, in, in response to the language of trial, right? Because the language of trial, the language he uses there, the fiery trial that's happening to you, that's, that's the language of smelting, that's um, metallurgy. That's a, that's a blacksmith, okay? In other words, uh, when, when you and I hear trial or test, we think, um, we think seeing whether something is true. Like, um, you know, when we get a test, we have to express something right away or else we have failed the test. In this kind of language, a test is something that actually makes it true, that makes it right. That you, 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 put a me, you put metal through a trial to extract its impurities and to make it pure, not to see if it is. Second is this notion of strangeness. Look, the first century was full of suffering and struggle. We take that for granted, right? Because we forget that this was written to a first century audience. People in the first century, especially if you lived in cities, cities where they had about, um, you know, a, a city the size of Stanton with about, I don't know, 12, 13 times the people in it. Density was high. Sickness was going crazy. Just regular fact of people dying. They, struggle and suffering was something they knew a lot about. So why would they be surprised? Why would Peter talk to them as if they were surprised? Well, to understand that, we need to understand Christian expectation. Nelson, if you were a Jew in the first century, which was a healthy portion of Peter's audience here, people who had been converted to Christianity out of Judaism, if you were a Jew in the first century, you held to a story. And that story basically saw the world in terms of a brokenness that wasn't supposed to be there. The world wasn't made for it. And that brokenness came through a broken relationship, a broken relationship between God and humanity that came when, when we decided that we didn't want to be dependent on Him anymore. We wanted our own independence. We wanted to be um, uh, independent of Him in terms of our being. We wanted to be like Him instead of just His image. We wanted to be independent of His, uh, his ability to define things for us. We wanted to define what was right and wrong. Okay? We wanted to define what knowledge was. We wanted to live apart from Him. And when we did that, the Bible says that this fundamentally broke us and it fundamentally broke creation. And the way that um, it would be described as, as uh, the people of God thought about this was they would call it, uh, they, they would define it in terms of a, a phrase, this evil age. How do you define the brokenness of the world? How do you define the world? When you walk out your door, they would say, it's this evil age. And this evil age is defined by sin and death, and suffering, and oppression, and violence, and injustice. Things like that. The stuff you, you, when you turn on the news. Okay? This evil age. But you see, this wasn't the destiny of the world. God had promised to restore us to himself. That was also part of the story. That was part of the narrative. Uh, he promised to restore us to himself and fix what we broke, and thus bring on what was called the age to come. Right? Very simple. This evil age, and the age to come. And the age to come would be characterized by life, by justice, by the absence of pain and tears, by perfect, unbroken relationships between us, between us and God, between us and creation. And it is this age 
that Christians believe came into being through life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Here's why. Christians believe that Jesus came to deal with the very thing that brought this evil age into existence. This evil age is brought into existence by sin, and therefore if the age to come is to come, it will have to be because sin has been dealt with. You see, the Bible is very clear that all of us are, by nature, sinners. That that is to say that all of us are kind of bent away from God, turned away from Him, seeking our own independence, seeking life apart from Him, such that even when we do good things that we could all define as good, that maybe even the Bible might say, yeah, these are good behaviors, the fact that we're seeking to do so independent of Him still makes it sinful, because we were made to be dependent on Him. We weren't made for life apart from Him. And so Jesus came to deal with sin by living a perfect life, by living a dependent life, and then taking upon himself the guilt for our sin on the cross. In other words, he died in the place of sinners. He died for us. So that anyone who trusts in him is united to him. His death for sin becomes their death for sin. Plain and simple. But then Jesus rose from the dead. Because you see, and that only makes sense, because if death is a result of sin, which is what the story says, and sin has been dealt with, then we should expect that death starts coming undone. And that's exactly what happened. Death came undone. Death is not natural to the world. It is an invader, an unwelcome invader. Here's why this matters. The New Testament is clear that when Jesus rose... When he rose from the dead, the age to come had dawned. And that is why Christians during Peter's day might be surprised at the fact that they are facing fiery trial. If the age to come has dawned, why am I suffering? If the age of life has dawned in the resurrection of Jesus, and I am a follower of Jesus, not just united to his death, but as as is said in other parts of the New Testament, risen to life with him, what's going on? You see why Peter has to address this? If your expectation is that you are a follower, that if as a follower of Jesus you won't suffer, and then you do suffer, you have two options available to you. One is that you aren't a real follower of Jesus. That's those of us who already have an excessive guilt complex. That's where we go. Maybe I'm not a real Christian. Or Jesus ain't the dude. Either I'm not the guy or he's not, because Christians shouldn't suffer. Those are your only options. If you expect that suffering shouldn't be true for a Christian, Peter is undercutting this by saying it should, in fact, be a Christian. Now, let's look at what it means to to suffer uniquely as a Christian. Some of us are already struggling with this. Stay with me for a minute. Look at verses 14 to 16. Because these verses define for us what Peter is talking about when he says fiery trial. He means suffering as a Christian. Now, this is important, so I need you to hear me. Because the Bible is very clear that bad stuff happens, right? Most everybody in the Bible has very bad things happen to them. The world is broken. That is not what Peter is talking about. In this passage, Peter is not talking about just random bad things happening. He's talking about people, um, people actually suffering for being a Christian, not the common suffering of life. Did you see that? Because he talks here about being insulted for the name of Christ, for suffering as a Christian, which during this time was still a pejorative, right? That, that's not a self-designation. Christians during a time called themselves disciples, 
followers of the way. It was the world that called them Christians, Christianos, little Christs. Why? Because their Christ suffered on a tree. Go be like him. You know, that, it was a pejorative. So what Peter is talking about is not getting into a car accident. He's talking about the particular suffering that can come with being a Christian. Now let me give you three ways this can happen. The first is, of course, suffering for being a Christian, right? Like people mark you out and go, Christian, and then harm you in some way, whether it's emotional, psychological harm, or physical harm. Like that's suffering for being a Christian because you bear the name Christian. Then there's suffering for acting like a Christian, right? Where, where you're like unwillingness to cheat at work keeps you back, or your desire to defend the weak brings you harm, that's suffering for acting like a Christian. And then there's, then there's suffering for loving like a Christian, which my guess would be the majority of us, where we live today. And what I mean by that is that we suffer because of our determination to love and to serve others at cost to ourselves. We'll flesh that out more in a little bit. But all of these are suffering as a Christian, and this is what Peter is specifically addressing. And to this, Peter says, don't think it's weird to suffer. Instead, rejoice. Right? Rejoice. Now, some of you are like, Peter's smoking some bad stuff if he thinks I'm going to rejoice at that. But look why in verse 13. He says, it is because you share or because you have fellowship with or because you are participating in the sufferings of Christ. In other words, Peter's saying that you are suffering for the same reason Jesus suffered and so are close to him. It has to do with a a relational nearness that happens. Christian suffering far to be avoided actually brings us into a kind of communion with Jesus that other things do not. That's not all he says. He says that if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but glorify God. Uh, The ESV says in that name, but, but actually in the original it says for that name. Why? Because it's by grace. In other words, he's saying, like, look, if you're suffering for being a Christian, if you're suffering for being part of God's people, understand that's one of the signs that you are in that group. You are one of those people. That'll play out a little later, so stay with me, all right? Now, that leads us to the goal of Christian suffering. Look down at verses 17 and 18. Peter says, it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. Now, (laughs) stop there. This can be pretty confusing, okay? Because some of you are like, wait a minute, Rick. Because you just said that Jesus bore judgment for me. How, if Jesus bore judgment for me, am I then, does judgment then start with the people of God, the household of God, which is another way of saying church? How, how exactly does that, does that work? Um, normally then, we, we get even more stressed out, right? As we move past verse 17, hit verse 18, we says, look, if the righteous are barely saved, what becomes of the ungodly? And we're all like... Like, that's me. I'm in. Okay, stay with me. Here it is. Peter is, in a sense, trying to help our perspective. Okay? He's trying to lift our eyes a little bit. Because you see, the Bible is very clear not just that the way things are is not the way they were, but the way things are is not the way they will be. It's not the way they will be. One day, God is going to set the world to rights. And he will do so by judging evil and removing sin and its effects from the world. And, and the whole Bible describes that as judgment. Now, when you and I hear the word judgment, we think punishment. Do we not? When judgment falls, we think punishment. That is not what it primarily means, especially not uh, in Peter's case and certainly not in the original at all. 
what it basically means is the action of a judge. It means the action of a judge, which may be punishment. It may just be the judge setting things right. Now, in the Old Testament, there's often the sense that God's judgment for sin will start with his people. You see this a lot in the prophets. He's going to start with his temple. He's coming. But the reason for that is because they're betraying him. The very point that Peter's trying to make here is that you're suffering because you're doing the right thing, not because you're betraying him. So that's not what Peter's talking about. What Peter is talking about is that God's work to set the world to rights has begun now and is beginning in his people. Now, to get to the force of that, we have to get back to this idea of the test of verse 12. Remember what I said that the purpose of a test, the purpose of trial in in that kind of language is simply is to both um, to, to make something what it should be. Another purpose of the test is to prove that those, in this case, is to prove that those those folks who are in this group are actually gods and to refine us to be closer to him. Here's what I mean. Jesus told several parables that kind of fell in line with this. He told parables about things like seeds and soils. Remember that? One seed, four different kinds of soils. All those soils, they, they all seem to have the same immediate response. Well, except for those stuff that fell on the on the path. But the rest of them had the same immediate response. Something grew up really quick. But all but one of them, they, they didn't stick. And then he tells, and then he, uh, you have other things that go on, go on in Jesus' ministry, like this young guy who comes to Jesus, and he's, uh, the, the Scriptures tell us he's wealthy, he's really rich. And he comes to Jesus, he says, I want to follow you, and I've done everything. And Jesus says, one more thing, one thing you lack. Go sell everything, come follow me. And he's like, yeah, no, not doing that. And he walks away. Couldn't pass the test. Didn't pass the test. The idea behind all of these things, the clear idea, is that not everyone who claims to trust in Jesus actually does. Listen to me. Stay with me, okay? Because some of us claim to trust in Jesus because of things like expediency. It just makes life a little easier for us. That won't be the case for much longer, by the way, but we... We think that's the case. Or because of a cultural expectation, right? I mean, we do live in the valley. Isn't everyone a Christian? I mean, unless you're a Muslim, right? Or because of uh, community. Because we come into a group that loves us well, and we're like, I've never had these kind of friends before. I will stick with them, no matter what they ask. What do you want me to believe? Okay, I'm in. What do you want me to do? I'll do it. Just... Don't leave me. Or fear, right? Fear that, that um, if, if I don't do this, God's going to get me, and so I'm going to do this, because if I don't, He's going to get me. But some of us say we trust in Jesus, but in reality, we trust in our own goodness, our own morality, our ability to keep the rules. This is why when, when, when suffering does happen, whether it's the normal suffering of the world or the suffering that does come at being a Christian, we get really angry. Because we're like, God is not keeping his end of the deal. And in those days, what we really show is what we're really trusting in is not the Lord. It's in our ability to keep a contract. I'm keeping my contract here. I go to church every week. I keep my nose clean. Like, do you understand how hard it is to do what I do in, in the place that I do it in? Like, and, and here, all this stuff happens to me. We get angry. Why? 
Because we're not trusting in Jesus at all. We're trusting in ourselves. In the parables of Jesus, the different soils are shown by the results. And the rich young ruler said he would follow Jesus until it cost him what was truly dear to him. You see, you and I were created to find our satisfaction in Him. Not in our stuff. Not in our circumstances. And so the action of the judge during our now is to prove those that are truly His. Those that desire Him above the avoidance of suffering and to refine us more to that end. And that leads us to verse 19, where Peter says this, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. All right. We can breeze by this, but this is huge. The first thing we have to say is that Peter is talking about those who suffer according to God's will. Did you catch that? Because some of us want to give God an out, right? When bad things are happening, we're like, God would never want that. Wait a minute. But those who suffer according to God's will. Look, guys, this challenges that view that we have that suffering proves one of two things. Either God is powerless or that He's he's, uh, somehow out of control, like the world is out of his control. Peter's answer is, no. It's not it at all. This is happening because he is in control. This is going on according to his will. Suffering is not meaningless. I know that that's what our culture would tell us, that if you suffer, it's either meaningless or you're being punished. And Peter's saying, no. It's not meaningless. God is doing something. That's the question none of us seem to ask in the midst of things. We, we want to know why. What we don't know is, what is God doing? We want to know why, but what we want to know why is, what did I do? <laughs> what did I do for this? But what is God trying to do in me in this? It's never a question we ask. Suffering is happening according to God's will, not because God is off His throne. And look, this should not be surprising to us. Because... We follow a Savior who did everything right, but according to God's will, had to suffer. As a matter of fact, the book of Hebrews says or, 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 that he was, he was made perfect through suffering. Not as if he was imperfect and led to perfection, but his perfections were... Multi- like It was the, the proving process, the testing process, the trial process that showed his perfection. Because he was not willing to forsake the path because of suffering. God's will was done in Jesus, who suffered at the hands of those who hate him. Friends, God is sovereign. That does not always mean that we're going to know what God is doing. As a matter of fact, most likely, we won't. Those of us who pretend we know, we're just trying to get control of things. I can get control of this if I know why it's happening to me. No, you don't. And I don't. don't please don't come and ask me. Okay? I don't know. The, the, the letters after my name do not give me direct knowledge of what's happening in the world all the time. Okay? I will sit with you in your not knowing. And I will grieve our not knowing together. But when it happens, none of us know why.
But that, listen, Peter's point here, and we need to hear this well, and to borrow a phrase I heard this past week, is not that in the midst of this we need to know the plan, but we need to know the planner. We don't need to understand the plan. We just need to cling to the planner. And this is what he's getting at when he talks about a faithful creator. Look, in the Bible, when God is called creator, which, quite frankly, is not very often, but when he is called creator, the whole point that is being, done, that is, that is being accomplished is they're trying to draw attention to his, his power. His power creating things out of nothing. Peter's point in calling him creator is to say, the guy that you cling to is powerful. Not off his throne. Powerful. But then he also calls him faithful. In other words, that he is true to his promise. Because God in the scriptures is not only creator, he's also redeemer. Which means he is someone who makes promises to people and then fulfills them. He is faithful. He's not like us. We go through our day, we make a promise, it's a throwaway line, right? Parents especially. To our shame. We make promises to our kids and we we forget them. They're, They're a way for us to get them to do what we want. Forgive us, guys. But then we, we just walk past them like it didn't ever really happen. Uh, God is not like that. When he makes promises, he keeps them. He is a faithful creator. And so when Peter calls him a faithful creator, he is speaking to the fact that he is true to his promise, true to his word. In other words, Peter is calling us to trust in a person. In a person. Not our ability to know something. We trust him because he is powerful and faithful, which means he is for us. What does it mean to follow Christ when doing so brings suffering on us? It means trusting that he will do as he says. He will set the world to rights. And he is doing so by drawing us, even through the suffering, closer and closer to him. Now, let's take a minute and bring this home if we can. We wrestle with this in many ways. I'd like to speak to two. Okay? The first is the question of love. Because you see, one of the ways that Christian suffering accomplishes its purpose is by posing a question to us. What do you love? What do you love? It's an easy question. Because you see, suffering, like stress, doesn't create problems. It draws them out. (laughs) You know what I mean by that, right? When you're really stressed out and and you snap at someone and you're like, I'm not really, that's not who I am. I'm just under stress. Bull. That is exactly who you are. And that's exactly who I am. The only difference is what the stress does is it pulls away that little veil we keep in front of us, that respectable veil that makes everyone think, look how nice I am. The smile and everything's good. And then the stress goes, we're like, that's who you are. Suffering does the same thing. You say you love Jesus, then you suffer, you walk away. Guess what? You don't. And neither do I. Like, that's, that's the whole point. That's the whole point. We were made to love God. This is where our heart's true home is. That is why, in our circles especially, that quote by St. Augustine is so popular. Oh Lord, you have made us for yourselves, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. It, it rings true to us. But the problem is, is that you and I are obsessed with finding our rest in everything but God. And so Christian suffering asks us the question, Do we love God more than these? More than these things? Here's what I mean. When we're hanging out with our non-Christian friends and spiritual topics come up and we keep our mouths shut because we're like, don't want to offend anybody. 
Now, they brought them up. I'm not even saying like evangelization. Don't, what I'm talking about is like you're in a group of people and they pitch you a softball and they're like, what do you guys think about this Jesus dude? You're like, I ain't saying nothing. I don't want to be called a fundamentalist or intolerant or a bigot. You know what we say? You know what's going on? <laughs> we show that the love of acceptance, the acceptance of others, is actually more than our love for God and His glory. When we refuse to live in generosity because we, have, we, we, we want to have a big savings account, right? We've got to have a big savings account. If we don't have a big savings account, like, what will happen to us if the bottom falls out? Like, like, and we refuse to live generously because of that. What we say is, we love our stuff. We love our ability to control our own fate more than we trust our Creator. Now, here's the problem. If you listen to what I'm saying right now and simply try harder to make changes, it ain't going to work. It's not going to work. This is where the gospel has got to come into play. Because our fear of rejection by others is born out of a fear, or uh, fear. It's born out of our desire to be both known and loved. Both known and loved. Most of us have no idea what that means. We'll settle for unknown and loved. To be known and unloved is what our our deepest fears that we will be known to our core and not, and not loved. So what we'll do is that what will, what will be is unknown by those around us as long as they love us. Right? Here's the thing. The in the glory of the gospel, we are told that Jesus, in Jesus we are both fully known and fully loved. That we are known as sinners and yet loved by a God who knew you as a sinner and died for you. It's like my favorite verse in the Scripture. I say this all the time. Some of you are like, okay, we get... Paul says, the life I live, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and died for me, who loved me and gave himself for me. The order is so important. He knew you. He loved you. He died for you. That trust in that God frees us to risk the rejection of others knowing that the acceptance we have in Christ, the acceptance we truly want to be fully known and fully loved, we didn't do anything to get and we can't do anything to get rid of. It's ours and it's ours forever. Friends, our trust in money is born out of the illusion that we can make our world right. And we can solve our problems with it. We all are, we, this is the air we breathe. We're Americans. Enough money solves all your problems, right? We can fix things. We can be safe. That is a lie. That is a lie. The gospel frees us to give away our money because it presents a deliverer who actually does control the universe and has conquered our greatest fear. The one thing money can never buy, life. He has conquered death. Suffering shows us where we still need to repent and believe the gospel and draw closer to the God we were made for. But lastly, we need to talk about the question of perspective. Because most of us, suffer, most of us believe that, that we suffer because either suffering is meaningless or because we are paying for our sin, right? We've talked about that. That is not what Peter tells us here. Suffering, 
certainly does reveal our loves. That is true. But Peter's whole assumption in this passage is that those he has written to have chosen to suffer rather than to abandon Jesus. That's his entire point. The entire reason that they are suffering is because they decided to choose that instead of walking away from Jesus. When the softball was pitched, they took a swing. Okay? Christians aren't called to like suffering, right? When Peter says he doesn't say rejoice because you suffer, we're not masochists, right? That's not, that's not what we are called to be. But instead to rejoice because it draws us into fellowship with Jesus. Now listen, because the scripture talks about this in multiple places. The, the Apostle Paul talks about this when he talks about the light and momentary afflictions. He says that these light and momentary afflictions are storing up for us a weight of glory. A weight of glory. And Peter does the same thing. He draws our attention here in this passage to the last judgment in the same way Paul does. So that we aren't fooled into believing that the circumstances that you and I are going through right now are the only ones there are. That's the whole point. That's why Peter talks about judgment. That's why Peter talks about... That's his whole thing about uh, verse 17 and 18. His whole thing is to realize what you are going through now is not the end of the story. Do you see? The end of the story is coming. If you jump ship, how much worse will it be? That's his whole point. Listen, the writer of Hebrews even says that even Jesus endured the cross because of why? The, suffer, the joy sent before him. Because of the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Bearing the wrath of God for humanity? Are you kidding me? If that's the end of the story, who's walking that path? But Jesus knew the joy that was set before him and so endured the cross, scorning its shame. And that is the same thing that Peter is doing here for us. Some of you this morning are suffering for being a Christian or for acting like one. Like I said earlier, many of us suffer mainly for loving like one, continually placing ourselves in vulnerable places to be hurt again. Because that is what love and forgiveness does. Peter's encouragement is that this act is bringing us into closer relationship with Jesus. In other words, your suffering isn't God punishing you. It is your God being near to you. It isn't about His absence. It's about His very presence. What's more, the horizon of the new creation looms large here, friends. If we endure and entrust ourselves to a faithful Creator, trust in the planner instead of knowing the plan, then there awaits for us the life that we long for, the life that, we made, that we're made for, the life in which truly, not only would suffering be surprising, it, it, it's just not even going to happen. It's not going to be existent. But if not, if we abandon Him out of a demand that He makes things right for us now, as if when you're going camping and you're in your tent and you're really angry because your air conditioning's not working, why isn't my air conditioning working? It's a tent. I know, but the air conditioning's not... It's the demand that things be made right now. If we keep demanding that, 
then the warning of verses 17 and 18 lingers. Friends, every human will face God's judgment. Every human will face his action to set the world to rights. But Christians, because of Jesus, need not fear it. He was undone so that we need not be. Jesus faced the fiery trial and was destroyed by it so that you and I might face it and simply be refined. Friends, cling to Him, for He is faithful. Would you pray with me? Our God, as we come to You and struggle through the reality that we are... I would say that we're surprised when we suffer for being a Christian, but so many of us don't. And so we need your grace this morning to believe the gospel enough to make the choice. To believe the gospel enough to make the choice. And to follow you down that path. This is an aspect of our Christian discipleship that is so lacking. It's lacking in me. I'm sure it's lacking in my friends. Would you give us faith and repentance in this? For those of us that are suffering in that way, Lord, would you give grace to endure and the gift of joy of being near you? And for those of us here this morning who are not even sure what I just said for the last 30 or so minutes, I pray that you would give Give us faith. Faith to believe, faith to see that following Christ is costly, but it is worth it. Because you, O oh God, are the one that we were made for. Give us rest that we might find rest in you, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Please stand with me if you would. You'll find printed in your bulletins our confession of faith. This morning we can...